0: You're listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. In today's episode, we'll listen in on a discussion between Keith Brooks and Phil Brown about their role in the free education experiment, Alternate U. In 1970, Keith Brooks ran a course called Towards a Radical Psychology, centered around psychology in the context of the global liberation struggle, and the questions of what is its role and whose side is it on. Phil Brown ran a course called Demystification of Contemporary Psychology, challenging what he called the myth of mental illness. The discussion was part of Interference Archives' exhibition Free Education, which combines original archival documents from Free University of New York, as well as from related projects, including Alternate U and the Freedom Schools movement. The exhibition explores what it means to have a space for community at the intersection of art and politics, and how we generate history together through our work in these community spaces. We'll hear first from the exhibition's curator, Jakob Jakobsen, who also moderated the event.
1: My name is uh, Jakob, and I have been uh, part of organizing this exhibition and uh, doing research into self-organized uh, education for many years, and I've always been interested in, um, in the Free University of New York. That somehow led my interest into the alternate you. Tree University of New York was uh, established in uh, 1965, and it became Alton view in uh, 1968, and it was based on uh, uh, 14th Street uh, near near Union Square. And um, during the research, I've been speaking to uh, a lot of the people who have been involved. I think it's quite important to talk to the people and not just look for uh, paper uh, uh, trails. And uh in that through that I got in touch with Keith that is living around the corner down here. And he uh, was involved in the in the radical uh, psychology um activism uh, that was around um the alternate you and uh, Keith said like or showed me a book that uh, Phil Brown that is sitting here, Keith Brooks that is sitting there that um uh, that he made, and I'll actually read a little uh, introduction. It's called Radical Psychology, edited by Phil Brown. The format of this book is partly based on several courses I taught at Alternate U in New York City in 69 and 70, and those attending were important in initial construction of logical uh, format for presenting radical psychology. Keith Brooks, this is written by Phil, Keith Brooks has been the most singular, important, and helpful person a co-cheater at Al- Alternate U and co-member of several political groups and good friends and comrade, and an important influence on my thought in radical psychology, my debt to T. Keith is quite last. He has also helped going over the pr- preface and the introduction with me, offering much helpful advice and clarifying several points." Um, and this is as far as I understand it, it is first time in 47 years that you are meeting
2: uh, up? <laughs> it's been too long. <laughs> <laughs> um, first, I would like to thank uh, Jacob for uh, doing this. Um, I wrote an article, a political piece uh, somewhere, and at the end of it, you know, they ask you for a blurb, and I wrote, uh, you know, in terms of my, you know, a little bit of my history, I'm a longtime activist, blah, blah, blah. I taught at Richmond College, I'll mention that briefly, Um, And I also taught at Alternate U. This is in the blurb. And I I wrote that I would love to hear from anybody who uh, was there or knew about Alternate U. This was, I don't know, about a year ago, maybe longer. And uh, voila, Jacob must have... (laughs) (laughs) Whatever it was, here we go. Um, But first, in terms of uh, Free University, what does that mean? Um, It means actually a couple of things. One is Free University. How many of you know that uh, it, it, up until 1975 or so in New York, uh, coll- college was free. Uh, do you know that? Many people don't realize that. They don't yeah. know. The city colleges were free. The state university was free, not just in New York, but around the country. Free education, free university, that was the mainstream uh, that changed radically over, in its own way over the years to the point where it's now um, a lot of money. And I I taught at Richmond College uh, when they tried to uh, impose tuition, and it was a big fight. We fought it every year, um, and uh, eventually we knew that once they opened the door that uh, tuition would go up, et cetera, et cetera. So free university means that one time it was all free, and it should be. Uh, Higher education should be free just like basic education is considered a human right, so that's one point. The second point is that um, free university, free education meaning a challenge to the mainstream views as to education and uh, how it should be conducted. Um, in terms of uh, testing, in terms of content, that's a big deal. Um, so it, it has that dimension too and that's probably I would think probably uh, the free university uh, that was probably one of the main uh, impetus for the free university was not just that it was free; you didn't have to pay to walk in, but that uh, you would get a lot of ideas that you wouldn't get elsewhere. Radical psychology, uh, psychologist SDS. I graduated in 1968. Um, when people graduated from 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 college, and many people went on to graduate school. And it became something, an organization was formed called the Movement for a Democratic Society, which was graduate students, graduate students in teaching. There was teachers for a democratic society. There were sociologists for a democratic society. Um, and there were psychologists for a democratic society. And that's what uh, we organized. Um, we have it written that I was a co-founder of a uh, psychologist for a democratic society. I think so, but I'm not sure. <laughs> And if somebody wants to challenge it, that would be good, so we could get the record straight. But we did we did pull together uh, groups of uh, both uh, psychology students, graduate students, but also some psychologists and some pretty well known psychiatrists. Who you know, this is the context of this is the war in Vietnam, the the Black Panther Party, the fight against racism, the rise of the women's liberation movement. That's the context within which uh, psychologists for Democratic Society developed. Um, and among the things that we did, uh, you can see the newspaper, uh, we, we put out a newsletter or whatever you want to call it, um, uh, a couple of issues which talked about some of our activism. What, one of the things that really motivated a lot uh, was the stance of well-known psychologists, psychoanalysts towards rebellion. Uh, the youth rebellion at the time. Bruno Bettelheim, for anybody who's familiar, was a uh, major figure in child psychology and blah 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 and uh, there was a sit-in at the University of Chicago and uh, Bruno Bettelheim made a point <laughs> made a point of, you know, going after the students as they're rebelling against their parents and this and that. Margaret Mead Believe it or not, you know the war in Vietnam was a real litmus test for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Margaret Mead was a supporter of the war in Vietnam, believe it or not. Um, so uh, this was the impetus: is that here we are. I'm a psychology student. I think I want to be a psychologist, and uh, you know, hear these people. So there was a lot of uh, push against a lot of uh, the things that were going on at the time. Tell me if I'm talking too much about this, or we'll jump in. Uh,
3: so. Um one of the things that uh, you have to remember is that most of the professions at this time were very conservative, so there was a radical caucus in every organization uh, in sociology, in modern languages, in psychology, um, and there was always uh, some kind of a disruption going on to protest the sexism or the uh, the status quo orientation of, of these groups. And uh, we would, as psychologists for Democratic Society, we would go to the American Orthopsychiatric Association, which was kind of a... Multidisciplinary mental health group. We would go to the American Psychological and the American Psychiatric Associations and we would demonstrate against their conservatism. And uh, in, in some cases, you know, in, in DC, w- the American Psychiatric Association make what uh, now might seem absurd demands like organized psychiatry should pay reparations to the Black Panther Party. Uh, but that was just, ha- we were trying to tie all the politics in together. Right? It doesn't make sense except that we were trying to say, this is like the the vanguard to use a not such a great word, but uh, th- these are the people who really understand what the problems are in society and you're maintaining the status quo so you have to give them something to, to make up for what you've been doing. So yeah, we were um, uh, kind of aggressive in terms of disrupting conferences and making our, our points at those. We, but uh, you have to also put that in the context of every uh, organization, every professional academic organization had this going on.
2: Um, And what we did was we did Guerrilla Theater. It got on the uh, front page of the New York Times. I tried to track it down. I had the article at one point um, where we uh, disrupted, uh, I think, Bruno Bettelheim speaking Mm -hmm. and uh, made made our point. And there was another group at the time called Psychologists for Social Action who were less radical, militant than we were, but uh, they were also involved. So, um, you know, we did a number of things um, uh, connected to it. And um, at Alternate U, which we shouldn't lose sight of, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Alternate U, uh, I started. Uh, it was was you got something you want to teach? Well, why don't you go and talk to them about you know why you should be one to teach? Uh, Russian Revolution, uh, martial arts, um, uh, any anything that you you know. Uh, so a lot of different people. It was a great. It was a great place. It was a great time. Um, I taught a course uh, towards a radical psychology, the politics of mental illness, Phil also, and the situation there was anybody would show up, um, I mean I could tell you a couple of interesting anecdotes, um, uh, but it was a f- pretty freewheeling kind of thing, we'd all sit in a circle, there were no tests. There were, um, in my class at various times, anybody know who Grandpa Al Lewis was? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Only the older. <laughs> Grandpa Al Lewis, he was uh, an actor. He was on, uh, what was it? Um, I forget. Uh, the Munsters, right? The Munsters, yeah. the Munsters. Yeah. Uh, he was a lefty, I didn't know that. And uh, he would come to my class. He, had, he evidently uh, claimed that he had a PhD in psych, uh, child psychology years later. Anyway, he, he would come to my class. And um, yeah. I was a young kid. And I guess I was too shy, I never spoke to him, and he never said a word in my class. <laughs> um, which, you know, I had um, a member of the Young Lords Party at the time come to my class regularly, who uh, got arrested one weekend and was murdered by the cops. Um, and, uh, you know, a number of other activists, a woman who wound up in Europe with the Black Panther Party. Um, alternate U was a community in some ways, right? Uh, it was a community where a lot of things went on um, and um, a lot of uh, radical, I remember, for instance, Florence Kennedy, uh, mm-hmm. uh, African-American lawyer, great lawyer, Conrad Lynn, um, people mm-hmm. like that, uh, Stanley Aronowitz, uh, even Murray Bookchin, anarchist, uh, he taught at Alternate U. So, Alternate U was really um, uh, quite a place. Uh, it, was not na- it was not narrowly defined, I don't mean that in a negative way, in a ma- as a Marxist school, like there, are, there is the Brecht Forum and all that. It was very eclectic, which was very good in, in a lot of ways.
1: I might also ask, like you're making your presentation a little bit later, but like maybe you should describe uh, what role the traditional psychologist was playing in society during the Western War, during uh, the black rebellions in the cities, like in the schools.
2: Sure.
3: Um, Well, so one of the things, and I I have that on my slides, um, we had a demonstration outside Mass General Hospital, I think around 73, because there was a book by uh, Mark Irvin uh, and another psychiatrist. I think they were mainly actually um, neurologists, but they wanted to perform preventive psychosurgery in order to uh, identify people who might wind up leading riots or participating in riots in the streets. Uh, and so it was that kind of thing going on. A lot of electroshock being used. Uh, if, if you've ever read uh, books like Playoff's Bell Jar, um, and if any of you have read Phyllis Chesler's book, Women in Madness, which Keith brought, there was uh, a, a lot of um, the use of psychology um, in, in the therapy situation to make people adjust uh, to their uh, ideas. If you ever watched uh, uh, movies about mental health care in those days you you understood the hospitals were big punitive places people were there because they were transgressive Uh, people were there because they transgressed gender boundaries in particular and there was a lot of electroshock there was a lot of psychosurgery um, and it was used as a threat it was used as punishment so that was one thing but even on the on the more mundane kind of sitting in the office psychotherapy people felt that it was um, uh, you know supporting the status quo Uh, and Uh, Another thing, I remember, uh, this was actually at Columbia. Um, They were trying to come up with some, uh, they were so freaked out by 68 by the student strike there that they said, we have to make sure that students like this don't ever come to Columbia again. And they thought, let's devise some psychology tests that will help us weed them out and we'll figure out with our personality inventory test, how to get the radicals and not let them into Columbia in the first place.
2: There was Vacaville. Anybody remember Vacaville? Mm-hmm. Vacaville was uh, experimenting on prisons, uh, psychological experiments on pr- experimentation on prisoners uh, using electroshock. Uh, so that's you know some of the terrain. Um, by the way, one a, a book that was a mainstay that I used in my classes uh, was "One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest." If any of you have ever read it or seen the movie, the the book, you know, it's it'd be interesting to see how the book stands up today in terms of sexism. But in terms of very badly, (laughs) (laughs) but but in terms of uh, it was really quite uh, bringing to public attention Mm -hmm. how the mental institution is used as a place to fix the mistakes that society has made in in the schools in the family, meaning people who couldn't adjust. The other thing about um, uh, psychology. (laughs) was um, mental illness, and this is something that today, you know, um, the whole idea of conceptualizing the problems that people live and have in our society as an illness, okay? The medical metaphor that you're sick, as opposed to the description that you're having problems in living, that this is, uh, Allen Ginsberg once said, the poet, my madness is intelligible reaction to unintelligible phenomena. Meaning what R.D. Lang described in an essay, Mystification, Confusion, and Conflict, which is, uh, to use the vernacular, things can be pretty fucked up. It's not a question that you're sick. It's a question that people live tormented lives and don't see any way out of it. Uh, <clears throat> and the main, the main um, response to that has really been, aside from deriding uh, those of us who uh, reject the medical model of mental illness along with the language of psychopathology, uh, but the main response to it has pretty much been Mm -hmm. the medicalization uh, of people's problems. And what what that means is medication, the pharmaceutical industries, uh, Prozac, uh, and all the others that go along with it.
3: So the thing about this um, is, first of all, this radical psychology movement was really getting currents from all these other movements. It didn't stand on its own. And all the, cri- the criticisms of sexism and therapy came out of the women's movement. The, the criticism of, of Bettelheim came out of the youth movement, et cetera. So no need to dwell on this, because I want to be more specific. But you know, as Keith said, within um, psychology and psychiatry, there were uh, long histories of diagnostic bias, drapedomania being used as a diagnosis, to explain why slaves ran away, uh, or the founder of American psychiatry, Benjamin Rush, talking about anarchia, the fact that people wanted democracy in the new republic, and then the Betelheim example. Um, this was probably the first book that really hit the mass market. Uh, Chesler really nailed it on the head. She's um, still around talking, um, very, very active, um, still living in the city. But many other you know, examples of diagnostic bias came up, and. Um, one of the interesting things was like the Broverman study that when they did a, a survey of psychiatrists and psychologists, asking them what is a healthy male personality? What is a healthy female personality? What is a healthy human personality? They gave complete sex role stereotypes for each male and female and when asked about a general human personality <coughs> it was the male characteristics. So this you know, started to be the foment within the intellectual traditions um, and then, as I mentioned, these other kinds of uh, things about uh, anti-riot uses of uh, psychosurgery. Uh, a little bit later on, what was called by the critics the women's diagnosis, taking something like premenstrual sim- symptoms and turning it into a very uh, offensive but scientifically sounding late luteal phase dysphoric disorder um, or paraphilic coercive disorder. Instead of saying these are sex abusers and. Pedophiles were going to say that they have a disease called parasyllic, coercive disorder. Um, And then masochistic personality disorder, why do women stay with men who beat them? Uh, It's because they're masochists as opposed to because they're being beaten by men. Um, And the critics alternative was that there is a thing called delusional dominating personality disorder. That was the the patriarchal disorder. (coughs) Of course, homosexuality's diagnosis was a very big deal. And we had demonstrations uh, at the APA over this. The gay rights movement was very, very involved there. And the psychiatrists gave up not because they were convinced but because they were threatened. And they simply took a vote all in favor of dropping that diagnosis, raise your hand. I mean, it was like they didn't really apologize for having created decades and decades of of false science. Lang was the key person in his colleagues in the anti-psychiatry movement. And um, Lang starts out, you know, being very uh, kind of a left Freudian. Um, but he's not really that political, but he's very sensitive and empathetic to how how do we hear patients' voices, which was already like a very radical thing to say because the idea was the psychiatrist was the authority figure, I'll tell you what to do. And he and Cooper uh, do these alternative wards where they give patients a lot of power, uh, and they start to come up with alternative community-based therapies. Um, We did plan to have a movement therapy center because people in the movement didn't want to go to traditional therapists if they had problems and everybody has problems whether it's family problems or work problems and um, we never really got that uh, under wraps. Um, In 1969 uh, there were a bunch of people at the Minot Air Force Base in North Dakota, uh, Strategic Air Command, this was one of the main places that was going to push the button when the Russians started firing or we started firing and uh, a bunch of people went there and they signed up, they got commissioned uh, officer status so that they wouldn't have to go to Vietnam. Um, One um, was Michael Glenn who was the real intellectual and political leader here, a psychiatrist, but there was also Michael Galen who was the business manager for the hospital. Their wives got involved and a couple other people. And they also did some local political stuff with youth centers. Um, But Michael said, like, let's start this thing called the Radical Therapist, let's really publish something that comes out regularly that addresses both the political and the professional audiences and tries to explain our new radical psychology to those folks because we think that we can somehow show them what's going on. The movement around them is changing everything, the times they are changing. Uh, And, you know, just listen to the lyrics of that song and you totally understand like how much faith there was that people could change because we saw how quickly stuff was happening. And our slogan was therapy means change, not adjustment. So we we published this for a number of years. We had two anthologies in the U.S., one in the U.K. Uh, They moved to Somerville in 1971 in Massachusetts when their uh, enlistments were up. And uh, I moved up to work with them. I thought this was great. I had been... uh, the New York representative. I was like going to all the bookstores and leaving on consignment the magazines and meeting with other like-minded people um, and we were trying to radicalize professionals uh, in New York. Um, There was a long series of changes mostly around discussions of professionalism. Uh, Some people thought that we were uh, not professional enough. Some people felt that we had to be more critical of the professions. There was a series of name changes. So The radical therapist sounded too much like therapy. Let's talk about rough times, which is a much more kind of secular, everyday term. And uh, eventually the name changed to state and mind, which was like, we're, uh, as long as we're smashing the state, let's also put it in the, in the title. So state and mind, we're trying to bring therapy and um, political action together. At the same time, what was happening were a group of people starting in New York and a couple other cities starting Mental Patients Liberation Fronts, taking that name from the Liberation Fronts around the world, um, many different kinds of, of names, uh, but the one that I worked with a lot was, on a, uh, was uh, Vancouver, the Mental Patients Association, and in Judy Chamberlain's book, she was the, the real leader of this in, in Boston, she's got a, a great chapter on that. They they formed uh, uh, alternative uh, housing and they they were really uh, amazing at, at working to, uh, to change the system and provide uh, alternative care. But the patient's rights movement fought in legal ways. They fought to uh, change the laws so you could have the right to treatment to get better treatment in the terrible facilities, the right to refuse treatment if you didn't want it, um, the right to representation when you were being committed because at that time you had less rights than a, a person accused of a crime. And also the right to hold licenses, to conduct business or drive or other things, uh, to be a professional a barber or a beautician uh, after release. Um, we, we fought for institutional rights, uh, pressuring the hospitals to change what, what they did, especially around treatment like electroshock and psychosurgery, um, and a lot of criticism of the, the professions themselves. Uh, so the Mental Patients' Rights Movement uh, groups came um, up at the same time as we and the medical therapists. We provided them uh, a venue for publishing their, their thoughts, their, their um, manifestos, their ideas. We, we had news items about all the work they did. We, we helped them in their organizing efforts. Uh, and as I say, they, they started to say, you know, if, if the system's not working, let's make new systems. And the people in Vancouver did a great job of this. There has been, I think, part of the long-lasting uh, effects of this movement is that a lot of mental health professionals are more attuned, uh, are trying to be more receptive. There are, you know, patient representatives on a lot of national boards. Um, there are, there's more support for uh, non-traditional treatment. Generally, mental health services still come very, very low in the budget lines of most states and cities. Uh, mental health services are the the first to close or to be curtailed when there's a budget crisis, and there's still a lot of stigmatization, and people who work uh, on the lines doing the daily work for uh, these hospitals and clinics and aftercare centers uh, are very, very poorly paid. So there's still not as much um, social and political support for uh, the mental health field and the, uh, both the, the provider and the, the sufferer side. You know if you were around in, in the mid 60s and you saw how quick things happened and how huge demonstrations got and what what the world looked like in 68 with rebellions all over uh it was kind of easy to think that the revolution could happen and i think we really thought that it could happen you know we were we didn't have a strong enough movement to do that we didn't have enough people um, but we we believed it we wanted to believe it and I got to tell you the fact that we believed it made us better because we were able to push for much more than we would otherwise um, the one of the i it's great to go to the bathroom there because it's like all French you know sixty eight um be realistic, demand the impossible. I still have a matchbook in my collection of memorabilia that says that be realistic, demand the impossible. And we thought the revolution was around the corner, and you know to some extent. Uh, it, it could be right you know it's like we made fun of, of John and Yoko saying you know the war is over if you want it because that seemed like too sim- uh, wimpy like no the war is not going to be over because people are dying you know on both sides over there but there is something to be said about the fact that if you really believe that you can make a revolution you make enormous changes it's impossible to believe I mean having grown up in the segregated South going to segregated schools to um, it's at a time I lived in a state where if women wanted to operate a business, they had to get their husband's permission to get a license from the secretary of state. Um, to the the differences that we saw um, in, in so many realms of society as bad as it seems now, if we weren't pushing and thinking that the revolution was around the corner, we wouldn't have as much as we have now and as much as we're going to get in the future.
2: And I would say that um, you know, uh, not everybody believed that a revolution was imminent. Um, uh, people were pushed into action by the circumstances of the time. It was tremendous. I consider myself to have been extremely privileged, fortunate, whatever word, to yeah, have really yeah. to have lived through that period of time. Mm-hmm. Like Phil said, you saw things happen. I, I remember one incident at LIU. Where we had shut down the school as we were known to do every now and then. And uh, we were blocking a building uh, for people getting in, students, I forget why. And I think it was in the spring. And I remember this guy who was actually, I think, on the Olympic wrestling team. Do you remember this? This guy, you know, bar- he kicked and barged his way through and uh, got into the building and, you know, I don't know, didn't badly hurt a lot of people, but you aren't going to stop this guy. I remember coming back. I graduated. Do you remember this incident? The Yale building.
3: I, I remember like charging through the security guards. I remember we were blocking midterms from happening. We had a thing called the right. midterm squad. Right.
2: There's there's a lesson to why I'm saying this. I came back a year later, and the guy's in an SDS.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and you and I'll tell you why. One, the, you know, uh, as an organizer, and I went on to do a lot of organizing. I would say the one thing I learned is you never stop talking to people. You never stop talking to people, and you have tremendous patience. You don't let people go beyond a certain boundary, but you never stop. I can remember ta- you know, arguing and talking with people when I was a sophomore in college, at the table by the cafeteria about the war in Vietnam, next year, the year, and they turned against the war. It was, it, it's, it's the course of events in context oh. of uh, alternative views and struggles going on. So, you know, what motivates me, mm-hmm. um, is the struggle Uh, you know if I I knew there wasn't going to be a revolution I'd still be doing what I'm doing
0: from all of us at Audio Interference thanks for listening